Welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. August is here, Parliament is no longer sitting, but politics hasn't stopped. And here to flag up what to look out for in the week ahead is Ros Taylor. Hello, Ros. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you, Andrew. Good. Well, first up, uh, new COVID cases continue to fall. There were 21,314 on the last day of July, but we're now running into a drop-off in vaccinations among young people. Uh, The government dropped its insistence at the weekend that all students should be jabbed before starting their courses. And it's now looking at incentives for young people to get the uh, to get the vaccination, including discounts on Uber and Deliveroo. What's going on here, Roz? We've known that vaccine hesitancy has been greater among young people, which makes sense on one level because clearly they're less, much, much less likely to die of COVID than older people. But we're really running into that now. And what you're seeing is NHS Trust saying, I have... You know, we have too many vaccines. They're going to go off if we don't, you don't use them in the next two weeks. And exactly the same thing is happening in the in the States. There is just not enough take up because the people who want the vaccines have gone out to get them. And you're now faced with a couple of different groups, actually, um, who need to be reached. One of them, well, one of them, I think, is very difficult to reach. One of those is hardcore anti-vaxxers who will be consuming lots of anti-vax stuff online and are basically determined that they are not going to be having the vaccine. And they will be very, very hard to win over. You're not going to win those over with a 10% discount on delivery, put it that way. (laughs) So... I don't know. A lot of those guys look like they enjoy a really big breakfast of some sort. So, uh, you know, maybe. I don't know, though. I mean, I, I don't think we should we should stereotype. There's actually a surprising diversity of anti-vaxxers. You know, it, it ranges from the woo, you know, and quite lefty people all the way across the political spectrum. The other people who you need to reach are the kind of ones who just can't be bothered, basically. Mm. And these are people who have busy lives and they're busy doing stuff and they're like, oh, vaccine. Oh, I've probably already had it. Why do I need the vaccine? You know, I'm probably already immune. What is the point? And so those are the people you need to somehow convince to just go and do it. And that is what the discounts and so on are intended to do to reach those people. I'm not sure it's going to be a very successful strategy. It hasn't really worked terribly well elsewhere, this kind of incentive. And if it does work, it tends to have to be monetary. So people get, you know, 100 quid or something because then they can spend it on what they want and they don't feel bribed to do something so much. I mean, they are being bribed, but they have a bit more autonomy. There are a number of different ways that you can try to persuade people to come on board. And the Vaccine Confidence Project, which is based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, has been doing quite a lot on this. For example, could you get different generations to persuade each other? There have been incidences in the States where you've had young people taking their vaccine sceptic grandparents to be vaxxed. That hasn't been possible here because of the way the rollout has gone with, you know, oldest people first. But could you do that the other way? Could Mm. you have uh, uh, older people saying, you know, come along, I'll come along with you. If you don't like needles, I'll hold your hand. Is is that something we should do? Should we be appealing not to people's selfishness and people's greed (laughs) with Deliveroo? Should we be appealing to their altruism? Should we say, rather than the ads that have been running at the moment, which is let's not go back, Let's not go back to how, you know, lockdowns. Do this for society. Do this Mm. for the rest of society. You know, a picture of an NHS worker who really wants you to get vaxxed. I think that might be a more successful strategy. You just mentioned the Wu Coalition of of anti-vaxxers. We saw some quite disturbing demonstrations last weekend against the vaccine. 
as the figures fall, which is puzzling a lot of a lot of scientists, from where your your vantage point, you're the editor of the LSE COVID blog. Can you see these attitudes becoming more popular? Is is there a growth in in vaccine scepticism, in um, lockdown denialism, and the kind of the, the crossover? Yeah, there is. And obviously, the more that you say we may have reached herd immunity, the less likely people are to go out and get vaxxed. That's why in states where you're seeing a big rise in cases like Florida in the US at the moment, people actually are going out and wanting to get vaxxed now because it's coming home to them what will happen if they don't. But if you get to a kind of state where you say, oh, we're probably reaching herd immunity. And it is true that 90% of Britons now have, that includes kids, now have Uh, antibodies to COVID doesn't mean they won't catch it in a mild form potentially, but they have antibodies to it. So we are getting there, but we just don't know exactly how high we get uh, need to get in order to fight the Delta variant. Because as you're seeing in Australia, for example, where they're still trying to hold on to achieving zero COVID by very strict lockdowns with the military on the streets now, it is really hard to stop Delta spreading without very, very strict lockdowns. And it's our number, which I think we're all familiar with now, is probably about seven. That makes it very high, much, much higher than the original COVID. So we don't as well know what variants are going to emerge and whether they might, I hope, not be more infectious or more serious. So we're in a very difficult stage wet now where it's really hard to say what will happen, in particular in the winter when the pressures on society are greater and when there are other diseases that are creating problems for the NHS too. But I think we do need another push we need positive vac stories to be circulating. René de Riester, who's a really good, uh, an expert on social media, who's at Stanford today, was pointing out that we need positive people to be positive about the vaccination on social media and not just to get it and then forget about it, because you have to overcome the sheer weight of misinformation that is circulating. So, for example, if one of your relatives got COVID and you were with them and you didn't, probably because you were double vaxxed, maybe say that. Don't just say, as I've heard multiple people saying, to be honest, in the last two or three weeks, oh, you know, I know someone who was double vaxxed and they were really ill for a week because that's really not going to help. We, we, I think we all need to be more positive about it. Just the fact that young people are uh, harder to reach on the vaccine and also more sociable, is this likely to, uh, you know, to produce further variants or, or make the more infectious Delta variant spread more rapidly? I mean, essentially, should we should we be doubling down and, and driving even harder to get young people uh, vaccinated because they're more likely to spread this more serious variant? Well, yeah. I mean, this is where the whole... Uh, direction is going now with these particular incentives, you do need to aim for young people because that's a lot of them are not vaccinated or have only had one shot. Make sure they get both because with Delta, you don't have a great deal of protection with one shot. So yes, absolutely. The priority now is young people. Having said that, the Telegraph, I think today says that the government is going to run out booster shots. So effectively a third shot in the autumn, and that will be for over 50s. And the reason for that is it's been found that Pfizer's effectiveness diminishes by about 6% each month. Right. And so that waning immunity means that people are going potentially to need another shot in order to maintain the level of protection that they have at the moment. What proportion of our cases are Delta variant now? Is it is it the dominant one? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty much 100%. Yeah, there's right. very few that aren't in, in Britain. 
Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, you mentioned it a moment ago, the, the fact that this perplexing situation that cases rocketed at the start of July, and then they've started to fall after the grand reopening. And it's really confusing um, scientists. John Edmonds of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine told The Guardian that this is the most uncertain moment of the whole the whole situation. I mean, wh- what are you hearing from scientists about the way they think it might go? I mean, you mentioned herd immunity a minute ago, and there is the talk of herd immunity is back in the papers. All the kind of plausible scenarios that they're talking about. It is very hard to know. We just don't know what the threshold for herd immunity is in this country with Delta and what will happen as potentially the efficiency of vaccines diminishes over time and new variants emerge. So for the moment, you know, things are not looking too bad, but that does rather depend on no appalling new variant emerging. And that is a risk. And unfortunately, although people are rightly saying that the risk of a new variant emerging when the, uh, when the virus is circulating freely is quite high, I'm not sure I see a practical alternative to that. I don't think there's an appetite for more lockdown mm. on the basis of potentially trying to prevent a new variant emerging, particularly as the same thing is happening all around the world. The ideal that we're hoping for, frankly, because we're not going to achieve zero COVID, is for COVID to be an endemic disease like colds and like flu, where unfortunately it kills thousands of people every year. And that's the best we can hope for. And hopefully it will become something which we all catch every couple of years or so in some form or other, because we know it mutates very, very quickly, just like flu does, but that it is not a threat to the, you know, a threat that needs causes us to to lock down. One last thing on uh, young people and their role in this: the government dropped its plans for students to need COVID passes to attend lectures uh, over the weekend. What does that mean for COVID passports in general? I mean, they've fallen disproportionately on the young clubs, festivals, universities, whereas the old people uh, are apparently well, we're all jabbed up, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, um, the government's been a bit half-assed about this, to be honest. <laughs> it hasn't. It, it's admired what. President Macron has done in France, which has basically said you can't really do anything that's any fun or go on a long distance train <laughs> if you don't get faxed. Um, that has had an effect, but it has produced pretty pretty angry protests around France. There's a lot of unhappiness about it. So the government's been more half-assed and basically said, oh, we may, you know, we may uh, basically make it difficult for you to go clubbing if you don't get faxed. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. One is that the clubbing scene, as you know yourself, Andrew, as is an not, clubber. Yeah, it's not, it's not the most kind of, you know, aligned with the government, shall we say. There will be plenty of things, there will be plenty of things springing up, which um, you don't need a COVID pass for. So I think that the attempt to control that is very is going to be very, very difficult. And this approach of basically saying it may get more difficult for you to th- do things in future, I think the most effective thing would be to point out, which is true, that you basically won't be able to travel if you don't get double vaxxed. <laughs> you won't be able to go abroad. Um, and for a lot of people, that will be quite sobering. Debate still raging over whether the shortage of lorry drivers is down to Brexit or COVID. Asda and Tesco are offering £1,000 bonuses for HGV drivers. And now employers in care homes and hospitality are also offering signing on bonuses to get scarce staff. Uh, we're not used to labour shortages, but when did we last have one? But what, what are you expecting to happen this week on this? Because it's, you know, different reports from different parts of the country, empty shelves in some places, full shelves in others. 
do you think this one is going to snowball this week? I'm not sure this week, but it's certainly going to snowball in the coming months. And it's mm. going to do so in quite alarming ways because there is a shortage of labour. One of the things which I think is not being picked up on by the media at the moment, because the media is not plugged into what a lot of migrants are thinking in particular. It's very middle class. It's very British. It's very, it doesn't really look outside its own circle, is that I think a lot of migrants are thinking of going back. In the past couple of weeks, I've heard of four or five people who have basically had enough and they are going back to other parts of Europe uh, because partly because of the EU settlement scheme and the problems they're encountering with that, partly because they are just tired and they've had enough. There's a general move, I think, which means that we're going to be suffering even more labour shortages. And of course, there are not people coming in because the rules post-Brexit have been tightened up so much and there's very little freedom of movement anyway. So what this has meant, of course, is that companies have to pay big bonuses, as you say, to people to come on board. And that's been especially the case in really hard jobs like being a night nurse, like being a mental health nurse, unattractive jobs in hospitality, things like that. It's all been compounded by the pandemic because that has led to a shortage of staff. And it will be interesting to see how the change in rules on the 16th of August plays into that. Because, of course, after that, when you've been double vaxxed, you don't have to self-isolate anymore. There will therefore be a massive incentive for companies to only take on people who have been double vaxxed, and the government isn't going to stop them doing that. They aren't going to say, you you must take people on whether they've been vaxxed or not. So that may well play into vaccine hesitancy in an interesting way as well. We shall see how that comes out. The problem with giving people a massive bonus. And instinctively, we have a lot of us, I think, have no problem with giving a mental health nurse an extra 10 grand, is that it drives up inflation. Once once you get a, a situation with a lot of inflation, and it's beginning to happen in the States now, there will be calls to push up interest rates to counteract that. And the Bank of England has suggested that it's very unwilling to move interest rates up, which as we know, are at a historic low. But if they do, that has big knock-on effects on the property market, on all kinds of other parts of the economy. So one of the things to keep an eye on is the effect on inflation of these big bonuses that people are getting. Well, Conservative MP and, uh, well, renter gob Andrew Bridgen, has the solution to this, or at least he knows what the cause of the shortage of HGV drivers is. It's Tony Blair for sending too many people to university, uh, which means that's why we haven't got the HGV drivers. Strange that this didn't bite until after Brexit, uh, even though Tony Blair was um, putting people in university for a very long time. But funny that. Anyway, in non-COVID news, Boris Johnson's popularity seems to be falling amongst Conservatives. A poll of grassroots Tories by Conservative Home at the weekend found that he dropped 36 points in approval uh, from members of the Conservative Party, as largely as a result of his U-turn on isolation. Rishi Sunak, who pulled off exactly the same U-turn, did not suffer any fall in popularity. But meanwhile, Priti Patel has dropped 20 points amongst Conservative members, remember, uh, over hair handling of the of migrants in the channel. Uh, Ross, do you think the Conservative Party is finally getting restive with its leader? Well, I hope so. And you should see Gavin Williamson's uh, ratings. I mean, they're just like off the scale bad, and rightly so. If there is going to be a reshuffle soon, and I hope there will be, um, although... To be honest, one wonders who's going to be brought in and how much worse they could be. But let's hope that Gavin Williamson finally gets the boot because of oh, that man. Anyway, in terms, can I just passingly, uh, uh, you know, talk about Andrew Bridgen's accusation that university numbers really boomed under Tony Blair is absolutely rubbish. It was under Thatcher and Major that university numbers really went up 
it was not. Uh, it was you know, obviously Tony Blair continued that, but the direction of travel was clear. That is just ridiculous. But yeah, are they getting restive? I think there are certainly. I mean, one of the things Steve Baker was saying this this weekend was pointing out how many poorer people there are in High Wycombe, and uh, which is not a place you necessarily associate with poverty, but is a surprisingly deprived part of the home counties. And there are lots of people there who are literally going hungry. It's not just being, you know, not being able to buy the food they like or want. It is not having enough food. And the withdrawal of the £20 universal credit boost, which is coming in September and which Rishi Sunak is determined to enact, will have an, a big effect on that. There is also an issue which Steve Baker has rightly highlighted with having to wait so long once you've been approved for benefits and then having the possibility of them clawed back, which is, as with so many aspects of welfare policy, quite frankly, cruel. All these things will kick in as normal service resumes and as people begin to get over the excitement of being able to go back to the pub and do basically what they want, and realise that their lives have not materially changed as a result of COVID, unless they've been lucky on the property market, in which case they probably have, it may well have got worse. And when that realisation starts to dawn, I think it's then that we will really begin to see a fall off in Tory support. There will also be an element of increased support for Keir Starmer as he becomes more visible. As I've pointed out before many times on the podcast, during a pandemic, the opposition is effectively silenced. There just isn't the airtime, the brain space for opposition politics. That will change. And as people see more of Keir Starmer, they will begin to conceive of an alternative to Tory uh, government. It has been the case during the pandemic that when there have been elections, as there were in May, the incumbents have been rewarded, whether that's the SNP in Scotland or Welsh Labour or the Tories in England. That will all start to change as the oppositions become more visible. So it's uh, summer is arriving at a good time for Boris Johnson then, because the, I mean all the launches were failures. Leveling up was vacuous. Send me an email. Crime was a bit of a catastrophe. Do you think he'll be um, glad that he's got a baby on the way and able to think about something else? Well, I have to say, babies can be quite expensive, and we know that uh, Johnson does have issues controlling his finances. So this is obviously a risk that he's willing to take for whatever reason. <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that struck me actually about this announcement, which Carrie Johnson made on Instagram, as she makes nearly all her announcements, is that, of course, she mentioned that she'd had a miscarriage earlier this year, which is obviously very sad and unfortunately very common. And this, the extraordinary openness now with which people in public life talk about miscarriage, which is a complete turnaround from even a decade ago. You know, I remember when friends were having miscarriages and they would talk about it, you know, they would whisper about it. They would say they were, it was almost, they felt so devastated by it, but they couldn't be public about it. And now it is something that's kind of freely talked about, like things like menstruation and menopause and all these other messy, messy things that are generally becoming more mainstream. So, you know, I always have mixed feelings about the latest arrival of a new Johnson, but I was glad to see in a way that it had provided an opportunity for this kind of openness. Just before we go, we might actually get a bit, a bit of an actual silly season this year, which we didn't get last year because everything was so grim. Two topics. The Latin launch, four million quid to put uh, Latin in schools and make it less elitist. Firstly, this was a, a peanut sum, isn't it? And secondly, 
the big row over the weekend about how this is uh, our elitist Etonian government that's only interested in recreating the world the world of a 19th century boarding school. You're putting four million quid into it. Isn't it just designed to provoke exactly that row and to get exactly those liberal voices into high dudgeon? I think the strategy is quite different in this case. And I've been a bit disappointed, to be honest, by how many people, influential and sometimes on the left, have been going along with this. As you say, this is peanuts money. It can only be peanuts money because there are very few Latin teachers available to teach Latin. You couldn't roll it out in every school in the country, even if you wanted to, because there's just not enough people to teach it. Leaving aside the issue of whether Latin is useful in the modern world, Uh, whether it imposes a kind of discipline on your thinking, uh, which is useful. I happen to think it doesn't. I think learning of modern modern foreign language is very important, but I don't think that Latin really adds much in terms of either usefulness or intellectual rigour. There's plenty of other intellectually rigorous things you could be doing, for example, in economics or politics, which are far more interesting and far more relevant. And for a generation that has been massively turned off grammar in particular, by some hideous and terrible amounts of grammar at key stage two. It's particularly depressing that they want to double down on this. But what I wanted to mention is the fact the welcome this has got from quite senior people, I suppose. People like Mary Beard, who I have a lot of time for, who basically supplied a quote to endorse this. Have we forgotten that the government has refused to give anything like the amount of money that is required to enable students to catch up after all the schooling they've missed. We just seem to have just forgotten that, that, that the amount offered has been pitiful, that there's hardly any money available in comparison, particularly to other countries, which are really putting money into helping kids catch up. And instead, we have this bauble, which frankly does appeal to a certain kind of middle class liberal outlook. And they say, oh, Latin, lovely, I remember doing that. And it's just, it's it's a distraction. It's not quite dead cat, but it's in that area. It's kind of, it's for fans of Alan Bennett, it's the history boys. It's all, oh, it was all nice when we all went to grammar schools and how lovely it was. It's not, it's just trying to distract you from the chronic lack of funding in schools. And it has really disappointed me that a lot of people have fallen for it and welcomed it when it's a pitiful sum of money and it is going to affect very, very few people and it doesn't even begin to address the scale of the problems we have. I think catus mortuus est. That's what I think. <laughs> I have no idea what you mean because, you know, I didn't. I went to a comp. I didn't say yeah, well, yeah, that. Yeah, I, I ain't got the Latin. <laughs> Finally, while, while we're on, uh, on class war, accents. Digby Jones, Lord Jones, having a go at Alex Scott for her Olympics commentary for dropping her G's on the swimming and the racing. Uh, although he didn't have a go at Pretty Patel for stopping those coming in on the sailing boats. Funny that. This is prime silly season nonsense, isn't it? But it did generate a huge amount of rap. Well, it's it's just pathetic, isn't it? I mean, mm. uh, someone who's been you know, elevated to the House of Lords, that just complaining about people dropping their G's. It's just, yeah. It, to be to be honest, it doesn't even strike me as silly season because I, I find it I find it so offensive. I don't know why people hate the hate this dropping G's so much. Anyway, I was wanted to ask you, Andrew, because I've been also reading this weekend that apparently Northern accents are on the way out and will be kind of disappeared in twenty years' time. Not if I've got anything to do with it. I, I, I don't know where this is coming from. Um, I think that's Stuart McConey, another guardian of Northern accents, wrote something about this, in, uh, I think, in the Observer at the weekend. I hear just as many Northern accents in London as ever I did because people want to preserve their accents. And as we 
you know, we, we, we have been up until last year, a very mobile population. You know, it's part of your identity and you want to hang on to it. And I don't hear anywhere on Merseyside, uh, you know, wh- where I go, adopting the London twang. I think it's a bit of rogue research, to be honest with you. Not right? even with Alexa, who basically forces you to talk in a certain way in order for, for her to understand you. We don't all have Alexas, I think. No, I mean, thank God. And uh, yeah, and oh, um, I have noticed, by the way, certain speech recognition programs, you know, for transcription and things like that. They don't like Scottish people very much. They cannot deal with the Scottish accents. Some of these speech recognition programs, and uh, mine, mine's fine apparently, but then I don't have a particularly strong accent. Northern accents will, you know, the North will rise again. These things will never die. <laughs> Ros Taylor, thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you. And we'll see you on the podcast next time. Listeners, thanks for listening. As you know, there's a new daily every Monday to Thursday with a weekend bonus one. You can get them all early if you support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You'll get an early RSS of the podcast straight to your phone, simply for free, and also get loads of exciting merchandise too. We'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Bodmasters production. <laughs>